And he was like, so here's what I, I want us to do. We're going to take family pictures. I'm going to die at home if it gets to that. And I need you to watch my dog. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We examine how fathers, both literal and symbolic, influence pop culture, politics, and the lives of people of every generation from all over the world. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. I'm Erin Hosier. On today's episode, I talked to publishing veteran and writer Brandi Larson about her late father, Eric Kleinert, a salt-of-the-earth appliance repairman and volunteer firefighter from Fort Lauderdale by way of the Bronx, who was the kind of person who heroically saved lives sometimes, but never thought to mention it. Eric may have been humble, but he raised his daughter to dream big and go for it, even choosing her as his co-writer at age 14 for the McGraw-Hill textbook Troubleshooting and Repairing Major Appliances, originally released in 1991 and now in its third edition. Eric was a walking, talking, number one girl dad and wife guy t-shirt, whose accomplishments included alerting the media to the appearance of the annual nine-foot-tall menorah he erected for his daughter on the front lawn, keeping a scrapbook of all Brandy's accomplishments for her to find after he died, and regularly pushing his toy poodle Rudy in a stroller at the mall with the love of his life, Eileen, Brandy's mom. Eileen would die in 2015, followed by Eric just two years later, and Brandy speaks with tenderness about caring for him in the final year of his life and opens up about the day her parents told her she was adopted and what she found out about her biological father when she went looking. Brandy's latest co-writing collaboration is a big one, Uncultured, a memoir by Daniela Mestinek-Young that has been compared to The Glass Castle and Educated, and draws parallels between Daniela's experience growing up in the Children of God cult and her time in the military. It's available next week, September 20th, wherever books are sold. Let's hear more from Brandy. He grew up in the Bronx and was a Bronx boy. I think he was called the rat as a child. Certainly had his share of neighborhood skirmishes. When my parents met and when he was meeting her whole family, my mom's cousin remembered him as the kid in the Bronx who would beat him up. And so he was a troublemaker, hilarious, strange. They had moved from the Bronx to Yonkers to Queens. And then my grandmother made a decision and was just like, I am piecing out of New York. I am done. We are buying a house sight unseen in Fort Lauderdale. Oh, and told my grandfather, this is what I've done. You can come with me or not. That I think was my dad's sophomore or junior year of high school. He finished in the 70s at Fort Lauderdale High. Did your grandfather stay in the picture? He did. 
for better or for worse. He just went along with it. Yeah, I think, so my grandmother was amazing too. And Uh I think he realized like, oh, I've got a really good thing here and had many careers as a fruitless salesman. Got it. And so I think he realized, oh, this is pretty awesome. Better not screw this up. I might as well go to Fort Lauderdale. Yeah, what was his relationship like with his dad, with your grandpa? You know, it wasn't good. And I think that, My grandfather wasn't the greatest guy. My earliest memory of him is pushing me down. Really? Yeah, I'm an only child, and which means that on on my mother's side, I'm the only grandchild, I'm the only niece. And at this point, I was one of two grandchildren in this memory. And I was learning how to jump rope. So I don't know, four, five, six, somewhere in there. And I remember being so excited and being like, Poppy, Poppy, look, I can jump rope. And I remember him, he shoved me and I don't think he realized how strong he was, but I fell and he said to me, I'm not here to see you. I'm here to see your father. And so I think my father's parenting was very much reactionary Mm -hmm. of everything that he saw his parents do. He did the opposite. I wanted for nothing. And in terms of his attention, his love, money, I had no idea we weren't rich. I just did not know. He was that dad who would give you like an allowance or extra lunch money or you just never wanted for anything. I don't think I had an allowance. I knew early on not to ask for a lot because I would get anything I wanted with the exception of a sister and a dog. But there was a moment (laughs) where I did get a dog. But yeah, and but my dad was sentimental too. Like Mm -hmm. he loved animals and the dog that they had before I was born, my mom had heard from the pediatrician or the local wives club, or I don't know, that sometimes dogs attack babies and so there shouldn't be a dog in the house. And so she made him get rid of the dog Uh, and it broke his heart. He carried Pepper's, her tags on his keychain until he died. Wow. He's that guy who would get down on the floor with every dog that we had. So my dad went from being at home with my grandparents to a very tiny stint in the Air Force to living with my mom and getting married. And he lived with someone until the day my mother died. Wow. And so had never, I was like, oh my gosh, you are a grandfather and have never lived alone. That's incredible. Yeah. And he was a communal guy. He and my mom went to the grocery store together. They did everything together. A social guy. He's the guy who walks into the restaurant and is, hey, is it done yet? Everybody's joker. Everybody's friend. He was an appliance guy. He fixed appliances. And I met a stranger on a train a few years ago. Oh, where are you from? Where are you from? Oh, yeah, I'm from Fort Lauderdale, blah, blah, blah. She remembered my father from 30 years before because he was the appliance guy in her father's condo. And she was losing her mind. A family member of hers was dying. She was taking care of all of them. Mm -hmm. And my father must have recognized that's what was happening and was like, you know what? I'll grab a, a Coke and I'll sit down and we're just going to chat anyway. And he hung out with her dad, babysitting him to give her a break. And she remembered him 30 years later. He was the guy who would talk people out of hiring him. Oh, you need this part. It's easy enough to do. I'll just fix it. Inherently honest and also a trickster, right? Like he was both of those things, just a, a huge presence of what I could be. How long did your grandfather live 
I think he was in his 70s. So that day that your grandfather pushed you down, how did your dad respond? Or did he know? I don't, I think he said, don't talk to Brandy that way, but I'm adopted. And he didn't want my parents to get married because my mom couldn't have real children. You're kidding. No. And so there was some bad blood between them. And I think it took a while for him to realize that I was a real grandchild, even though I was the first. My cousin Wes is the second and he's autistic. And so I think that made things even trickier because then he did start to accept me, which also sits badly. Meanwhile, my grandmother is making me costumes from scratch so that I can be the little red hen in the kindergarten play. So it's, it's very strange. But to my grandfather's credit, and we had a, an awkward relationship yeah, all the way through, as he did with his own children. From the greatest generation who were famously withholding. Yeah. and My dad comes from three siblings. He's the middle. And my uncle and my dad were 364 days apart or something. Yeah. Like 300, like almost a year apart. My grandmother went into labor with my dad at my uncle Mike's first birthday party. And so dad always had killer timing. But the, <laughs> the joke is that Uncle Mike was a nine pound preemie. Oh. Because when you do the math, you're like, that math is very strange. That math is very strange. My grandmother, to her death, was like, nope, he was a nine pound preemie. My aunt and I are like, let's talk about that. It was one of those marriages that might have happened because it was supposed to happen. That's what you did. In every picture, they're out in the Poconos, which makes them sound much richer and more glamorous than they were. But Jewish parenting in the 50s, they went, she's got the headscarf and the bathing suit and she's rocking a cigarette painted lips and she just looks like 50s glamour and she kind of was she worked for a cardiologist in the city at mount sinai but she was pretty clear about she went to work because she didn't want to be home with the kids because they terrified her can you tell the story about your parents meeting my mom was from brooklyn and her parents had moved to florida because her mom was in ill health and they come to florida And my mom was like living on her, on the patio of her parents' one bedroom apartment because Florida in the 70s, sure, you can put your kid on the patio. Eventually, her sister comes to live on this same patio. It's not a very big patio. (laughs) Mom is, okay, it's time for me to get my own apartment, gets this studio apartment that they would laugh about how disgusting it was. Like she didn't open the fridge when she was looking around. It had like roaches in the fridge. And so whatever, she's living her best life. She's out sunbathing by the pool. And my mother was gorgeous. So she's a knockout too. And is sunbathing by the pool, bathing suit. My father, he's fixing appliances. So he's on the roof of her apartment building, (laughs) fixing the AC. He, from the roof, sees my mother down at the pool and is like, yeah, I need to go talk to her. (laughs) And the chutzpah my father had is one of the best gifts he gave me. His whole motto was, if you don't ask, the it's always no, which has served me very well. And in this moment, served him phenomenally. Yeah. Because he goes down to my mother, introduces himself, and scores himself an invite to a party that she's having. He brings his brother, my uncle, and 
dad left the party early, maybe to see a different girl. Mm -hmm. My uncle was so inebriated that he needed to stay the night because it would be unsafe for him to go home. So my father, they're both living at my grandmother's house. My father realizes that my Uncle Mike is not at home the next morning, goes to my mom's apartment. They have a fist fight. Your dad and your uncle. My dad and my uncle. Yeah, let me clarify that. My dad and my (laughs) uncle have a fist fight. Somehow it all works out. My dad begins dating my mother. My mom and my uncle be are the best of friends. Wow. And everybody laughs. Like my mother swore like he stayed on the couch. He was drunk. I did him a mitzvah. And I'm like, <laughs> but you're in a studio apartment. Isn't there only a couch? So this is what a jokester my father is. They had talked about getting married. He, I think he had asked my grandfather, my mom's dad for permission. Like, I think he had done that. And it's April Fool's Day. Oh, God. Tomorrow when we're recording this. Yeah. So it's April Fool's Day. My father struts into my mother's studio and is like, I have a surprise for you. He brings her a blender. You should make margaritas. Bales goes to the bathroom. My mother begins making margaritas. As one would expect when someone brings a blender into their house and says, make margaritas. My father comes running out of the bathroom. It's like, you didn't look in the blender? Who looks in the blender? Who looks in the blender? I think everyone, after hearing this, should look in the blender. Because my father had put the engagement ring in the blender. Because, sure. (laughs) And my mother almost made margaritas from it. But she didn't. She she saw it and must have said yes. But for him, he always had the out of, it was April Fool's. Did I mean it or did I not mean it? Who can tell? I see. So how old was your dad and your mom when they got married? He would have been 25 and she was 29 because I came a year later and I think she was 30 and he was 26. Normal. So you're adopted. Yes. What do you know about your origin story? So a pro tip, if you are in the second grade and doing a unit on tell me about what it's like to be in your mother's tummy, perhaps you should not take the entire elementary school to see Annie the week before. Oh, God. The first assignment I ever failed. I was a a good student. I loved school, loved to read and to study, but... I did not like my second grade teacher. She had made that assignment. And the the assignment was go home, talk about being in your mommy's tummy. Thank you, the 80s in Florida schools. Sure. And my parents swear that they had been telling me all along. But this is my first memory of it. They sat me at the head of the table. And I wasn't in the dining room. And I wasn't allowed to touch the dining room table because a few years earlier, I had carved my name into it. They had something that we needed to talk about. And I remember them, they framed it beautifully. Like it was something along the lines of mom had an accident and no babies could be in her tummy. My biological mother had loved me so much that Mm -hmm. she wanted to give me a life with parents who could love me like mom and dad did. Oh, A plus to my parents for framing it of you were so loved. But 
I identified with Sandy the dog from Annie in that moment. I don't know how I disassociated, but I was like, oh my gosh, I'm the dog with the tin cans tied to my tail. But not Annie. Not Annie. Interesting. Well, because Annie, like... Even though I didn't know we weren't rich, I knew we weren't Daddy Warbucks. And Sandy, it's, it's sloppy. It's catch as catch can. It's an ultimate startup, right? It like, yeah. felt like more of my life. Was Annie the first time you thought about the concept of adoption or yeah. orphans? or? Yeah. And hadn't really thought much other than the sun will come out tomorrow. She's so optimistic. and Although I don't know if I had that language. But yeah, and I didn't want to tell my class. And I certainly didn't want to tell... That teacher, that teacher was the one who um, every school was overcrowded at this point. And I was going to the elementary school that was on Good Morning America for being the largest in the country at the time. Uh, I remember like they, they brought the crane out to have us all say Good Morning America, all like 8,000 of us or however many. There weren't 8,000, but there were a lot. And so we were in a portable and I remember going into the bathroom, but it was really a closet. And I cut my own bangs just because I felt so invisible. And I was like, oh, I'll show you. (laughs) So I did not get along with that teacher from the start and frequently would be called to sit outside the principal's office and would hear my mother screaming full on at both the principal and my teacher for how badly she was treating me. So your mom was, was very protective. Yeah. And, and my dad is too. He, he definitely wasn't the yeller. You know, mom certainly took care of that. He always, what did he say? Take no shit before it's time. Well, how did you feel about being adopted and learning that? I didn't like it. I didn't want to be different. We pass. I look like my parents. I have dark hair and dark eyes and so did my parents. My mom was 4'9", although she swore she was 5 feet. And my dad was 6'2". And so Whoa. they always... Right. And I'm tall. And so they always are like, oh, you're like a combination between your parents. You take off to your dad. And my dad and I would always like wink at each other. I look just like my cousin. Like literally you look at baby pictures of us and you could not see a difference. And so I like that I pass. I think as I grew older, I realized that it was something my mom was really hurt and ashamed by. And she was made to feel shameful of. She had had a hysterectomy Mm -hmm. because a doctor had punctured her uterus during a standard procedure. Horrifying. And he he sent her home and was like, you're fine. And my mom was living with my aunt at the moment. My my aunt picked her up off of the bathroom floor because she had passed out from all the blood. Got her in a cab and saved her life. You know, some doctor dude that was like, oh, you're complaining about your woman problems. So I think that there was this piece of shame that I felt from her. I remember when I was older, she was like, I I would prefer you to never look for them while I'm alive. That changed when I got married. Like They were very supportive and helped me look some stuff up. When I got curious and found, this was crazy, I was able to track my biological father Mm -hmm. to a trailer park in the west coast of Florida I wrote him a letter and it came back to me a few months later that address had been destroyed by a hurricane, which if that's not a Florida act of God for you, it was like, okay, it would be, it's like a nice to know because I've got some funky help things that would be very helpful, but also like my parents are my parents. And so I feel very secure in that. Although this is weird. So my husband got me like genetic testing for Hanukkah. And there were three other first cousins that we've all connected to and all of us are adopted. You're kidding. No. And you didn't know these first cousins before? Right now we're 
cordial acquaintances. But mostly our questions are like, oh, do you know, is this person in your lineage? And none of us know anything, but we all have very interesting stories. And so it'll be interesting to see like what comes from that. I have, I have an older half brother. The real story is that on my paperwork, you can apply to the state of whatever you're in for your non-identifying information. And they will write you a letter back that involves something like, your biological mother was this year's old and was from a mid-Atlantic state and worked in a bar alongside her mother and enjoyed writing and reading. She has an older sibling. How do they know that stuff? Is that volunteered by the person at the time? Yeah. And so the paperwork that she filled out that is signed and sealed, they read that paperwork and then they wrote me that kind of wow. stuff. Wow. But yeah, and my parents were like, oh, yeah, you've got a, an older half-brother. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Did they know that? Yeah, they were like, oh, yeah, we've told you this all along. And I'm like, we did not have this conversation all <laughs> along. I would have remembered that. I feel so grateful that my parents were my parents. Sometimes people ask, well, what about your real parents? My real parents were Eric and Eileen Kleinert. Those are my parents. My biological parents are the people for who I'm grateful, who gave birth to me. But my parents are the ones who loved me into life, right? My father was bar mitzvahed. And there are relatives on his side. There was the kosher butcher. But mostly it was like Jewish-ish. The casual approach to Judaism. On our way to temple, most nights we'd stop at the Chinese restaurant, the owner of which was also named Eric. And so Eric and Eric would like always have a moment like joking with each other about their names. They both got such a kick out of it. And like they would beat up on each other in like the kind guy way that yeah. dudes sometimes do. So yeah, dad would like have spare ribs before we went to shul. But yet, showy in our Judaism. From the time I was three or four, I had a big-ass menorah on our front lawn that my father built for me. And like the headlines of the papers, because he would call the newspapers every year, would be Brandy got her menorah. But why would he call the newspapers every year? Because if you're going to build a six-foot menorah or a nine-foot electric menorah, you want everyone to see it. True, true. Okay, let's talk about his work. Okay, so my dad fixed appliances for 40-something years Wow! and also did not have a high school diploma because his 12th grade English teacher, he couldn't pass that last class. And probably moving from school to school didn't help, but she told him he would be nothing. And I think he believed her. And so he was trying to figure out what to do with himself. And his parents were like, you should do a trade. If you fix air conditioners in Florida, you'll never want for a job. Right. And so he figured out how to do that and then did that for years working for, for different companies. And he owned his own business, which was Eric's Appliance Service. He awesome. had his name and his name tag, like in curly Q red script on his shirts. His own company, but he like made the shirts. Eric's. <laughs> so cute. My it mom is. was like his, they were partners, they were business partners. She did everything and he fixed the stuff. And that's what they did for years and years. And then... We were having one of those teenage conversations in which he was giving me a pep talk. I was feeling bad about myself for whatever reason. He was like, you can be anything. And I'm like, that's bullshit. Look at you. You're just my dad. And I get home from school and he is dancing in the driveway waiting for me. And I'm like, what? Because I'm like, oh, God, I'm going to be in so much trouble when I get home. I was such a jerk. Right. And so he calls McGraw-Hill, the largest textbook, textbook company in the world. And makes his way through the phone tree 
to an editor and on her voicemail is, hi, I'm Eric Kleinert. I fix appliances and I'm going to write you a book on it. Give me a call back. (laughs) (laughs) And she is not at her desk at that moment because she is in a meeting with her boss who is like, you know what? We need books on appliance repair. Get out. And so she gets back to her desk. Here's this and faxes my father a contract. Right there. Right then and there, which he signs. It's not the best contract, but... So he gets this contract. It was the same day that he decided. It's the same day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's the book publishing story that never, ever happens. And this is my favorite story in all of publishing. And so he's dancing in the driveway. He's holding up this like faxed copy of, we're writing a book. We're writing a book. And I'm like, hold the phone. What? We're writing a book. And and we were. He was contracted to it. And for him, it was he wanted to show his 12th grade English teacher that she was wrong. I think I was 15 when Troubleshooting and Repairing Major Appliances came out. He wanted to put my name on the cover. And I was like, Dad, that will kill my burgeoning writing career. I have one poem published in the (laughs) National Anthology of Poetry. This absolutely not. (laughs) And so I turned down the credit, which I guess makes me a ghostwriter. But we got to do it together. Yeah. What was your process? Because the book is about, it's HVAC. Yeah. Air conditioners. So it was dishwashers, microwaves, refrigerators, washer dryers, ovens. But you can look into the book and see what's your conversation with the technician going to be. Yeah. And so he kind of always wrote it as a hybrid of I am a homeowner and I need to fix my own appliances and I am a technician and I need to know how to fix appliances. So you can read it on both levels. And I think that was more him than me. Or maybe that's the way it came out in the wash because he's explaining this to a teenager. And I yeah. remember him standing on our driveway with, like, with his toolbox and was like, this is a screwdriver. This is a Phillips head. This is a flathead, right? Yeah. Going through and I'm like sitting there. Taking there- notes. I think we had brought the computer out onto the driveway. That doesn't seem right. But maybe I'm taking notes. He's taking photos. We're going to Whirlpool and Best Buy and Circuit City back yep. in the day to take pictures for the book. And he's contacting with Maytag and Mana and all the big company that are making appliances to send him the art. And we wrote it together. He gave me full reign to write the introduction in which I included the word ilk because it was my favorite and I had no idea about audience. And he was clear he never read it because there were like years later, we were looking at it together and he was like, ilk, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> Dad. He would tell me what the things were and then I'd write them down. And then there were some where he wrote when it was really exacting and it was just easier, especially if it was in list format, he would write that. I wrote all the intros and outros. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like how I spent my burgeoning teenage years. You know, other kids are out partying and I'm writing a book on the driveway with my dad about how to fix appliances. And yeah, so that that first edition came out in 1995. Okay. And it is in its third edition. It's still Whoa. in print, Troubleshooting and Repairing Major Appliances by Eric Kleinert. It's now the category killer. It's 800 pages. Yes. I got a royalty check for it this week. Thank you. Please keep buying it. It is absolutely still worth it. You know, it's dad's legacy to me. Cool things happen every time there was a new edition, get a little bit of publicity. And so he got to be in Real Simple and Money Magazine as like the appliance expert. By the time I got older, I made him a website that was like, ask Eric the appliance expert and keyworded it so that if you were thinking about HVAC, 
He wrote another book called HVAC and Preventative Maintenance, which is like straight up, I am a textbook for technicians who yeah. are fixing, who are looking at commercial air conditioning and refrigeration. But yeah, the troubleshooting and repairing major appliances is in libraries all over the country. Whenever I travel, I go to the library and I look huh. for it and I bring it to the carousel with me. And it, it just, it feels so good that we did this together. And then in the second and third version, he didn't need me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> But yeah, it was this amazing thing. And he called up. He like looked up his teacher, his high school English teacher, but she had already died. And he oh. was like, and I remember it was a conversation because he was like, I'm going to bring flowers in this book to her grave. I'm like, you will do neither of those things. <laughs> <laughs> it really stuck. Really but it stuck. does. It does. I still remember the fourth grade teacher that I hate so much and who was just so mean. But sometimes those impressions turn out to be formative. Yeah, she was so wrong. My father was an amazing man who, not just to me, but made ripples all over to everyone he met. Not And who, who grows up to be nothing? Nobody. That's such an awful thing to say to anyone, but especially my dad. He had real fire and real love and joy and humor in him that made the world better. He was a volunteer fireman, right? Was yeah. When did that start? So this was happening in the 70s before I was born when my parents were dating. And... I don't know exactly what made him become a fireman. It, our city, so this was Sunrise, Florida, which is a suburb of Fort Lauderdale. And they didn't have a fire department, so they had a volunteer fire department. So my dad joined, and he was part of the force that like, they did cool stuff. Like there's old Super 8 video of the Fireman Olympics for which he holds the record for the barrel Barrel. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm like, I cannot remember the words for this. But. It's the one oh, where they've got the hose and they have to shoot the barrel down the field as fast as possible. Okay, got it. No one's in the barrel. Not that I know of. Okay, but again, good. it's super eight. You, there's a lot. It's funny because my Uncle Mike was taking the footage of this. So there's a ton of footage of my mom, the dog, and then a little bit of my dad running down the field. But parents had it taken off of Super 8 and put on VHS in the 90s. And so they put polka music underneath it. It's like my father's running down the field. He holds that record, I believe. I think they stopped doing that event afterwards. And so like holds it by default. Yeah. But I think he always said, yep, I'm the world record holder, or at least the one for Fort Lauderdale. He tended to exaggerate like how big things were. But I can tell you, I went years later and they remembered him and they knew of his fire Olympic thing and the guys knew him. And he wasn't just the fun guy on the fire squad, but he was a legitimate hero, which he never, he didn't talk about that part. He talked about the Fireman Olympics and he was always holding that. But in quieter moments, like anytime that there was a plane that went down, mm -hmm. he would talk about the ones that he had worked on. And he, there were quite a few small planes that had gone down in the Everglades right. that he had attended. And then he never talked about this story. So he, he had gotten cholangiocarcinoma, which is bile duct cancer. And so one of the um, side effects of it is that you blow up with fluid like a tick Ugh. and you need to be drained. It's like, it's called uh, periosynthesis. And it was easier at that point, instead of him getting in the car, just for like medical transport to come get him. And so EMTs are the ones who, who do that. And he had fireman memorabilia like kind of hanging up. And it included like what house he was from and like his numbers and the years. And she looked at it and she was like, oh, 
I know who you are. You saved my captain. And he was like, who was your captain? And she named him and he got quiet. And my dad was like a larger than life, a joking guy who, who got quiet in big moments. He was like, yeah. And he told this story. They were fighting a fire in the Everglades. It was going very badly. They had multiple fire teams in and his commander, he called it. He was like, we're not going to win this. Things are about to explode. It's going to be bad. Right. And my dad knew that there was another truck inside the fire. And he was like, no, we're not going to leave them behind. And his commander gave the order, yeah, we have to. Wow. So my dad took the hose, asked for more water, and ran into the fire. And he said that there was fire all around and that his these guys were underneath the truck, the fire truck. They had buried themselves underneath the truck and were trying to fight the fire from underneath it, but it's pretty fruitless. And so my dad created a way for them to get out and they right. got out. And to me, this feels so much like an action movie, but they got out and then the truck exploded. Yeah. Yeah. Backdraft. Yeah. In the middle of the Everglades, it just he was like there was fire everywhere. And that man lived on to become the head of the fire unit and in charge of training. And so the EMT turns to my dad and he tells that story in class. That's the reason I'm here right now. Whoa. I wouldn't be an EMT without him. And he said he wouldn't be here without you. And you were just hearing this story? I'm just like cry. Yeah, yeah, we're all trying not to cry. Did your dad cry? Like He would not want me to say that he cried totally. But yeah, he was the guy at my wedding who like wanted to give a speech and got too choked up kept it inside. So you, after you graduate from high school, you had big plans to continue your writing career. Yes. Tell us about how your dad influenced that next phase of your life. My parents were my biggest fans. And I was an ambitious kid. I see writing a book with your father when you're a teenager. At the same time, I was also, I was a journalist. And so I was out reporting stories when having them drive me <laughs> to them. Yeah. And so he did not understand why I had not won a Pulitzer. And, and <laughs> In my, high school? <laughs> yes. And then all the way through. And I'm like, I'm writing features about Dora the Explorer. It's probably not going to be a Pulitzer. But I got nominated for a couple Emmys. And like to see him strut. Yeah. He was so happy. He really believed in me. Like they they talked about almost incessantly this story I wrote in third grade that my dad was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever read and like would recount lines from it that I'm not even able to do because I remember nothing about this story at all other than how much he liked it. He kept a big book of me like it was like a five inch binder that uh -huh. was the brandy book. And every time I did something cool he he put it in so, there so so cool you know i i went off to college i i broke their heart by leaving florida and moving to chicago they were very much of the mind that that was a bad idea and continuously asked me when i was moving home and and that was the big thing that we didn't agree on and if i had to do it again i don't know that i'd live in florida but maybe i would right mm -hmm. like to spend that time with them, I needed to be out of Florida immediately. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't psyched on it because it was so Chicago. far. No, it was just like I started college at the University of Florida in Gainesville, which was not a great match. I went from a, an arts high school that was like the fame high school to a place where there's 40,000 college students. It was <laughs> yeah. 
just yeah. overwhelming. There were 900 people in my math class. Like that just was rough. So I found a, a school in Chicago that was better suited for me. I wanted to do improv. I wanted to, at this point, my like heart had been broken by journalism because I was like, journalism is about the truth with the capital T. Like I had no idea that it was a business about selling newspapers. So I was trying to figure it out. And I'm first generation college. Yeah. And so I didn't really know how college worked. My parents certainly didn't know how college worked. When they dropped me off at UF, they were like, okay, here's how to do a checkbook. We'll put $20 in your account every two weeks. How did you pay? How did you pay for college? They had saved with the Florida prepaid college plan, mm -hmm. which is why they were like, you were going to a Florida school. And I'm like, I want to go to Northwestern. I want to work at the Chicago Tribune. I'm going to be an editor there one day. Mm -hmm. They're like, this is in Chicago. That's not going to happen because it is not in Florida. And it, I did make it happen. That is where I landed. But it was really hard for them to see that. And so I didn't have a lot of understanding about what was expected and how to do it and how to navigate it. Like I, I hear back about people going on college tours. and oh, my, I never did that. No, my parents, uh, I think they made me go to Gainesville. Right? That was what they decided was going to happen. How did I pay for college? So they paid for Florida. Mm -hmm. And then I left and I got myself uh, a really big scholarship to the theater school at DePaul for dramaturgy. Because again, I'm all about, I'll show you the truth. But like, it's like the most literary bookish part of the entire theater, right? The dramaturg totally. the, the person who does all the research and helps the director really understand what the play's about and writes the audience notes. And by the way, there's not jobs in dramaturgy. I just learned the word dramaturgy like three years ago, and I work in publishing. It's very specific. Yes. And in 1999, no one knew what it was either. But I didn't know that. I was just like, here I yeah. am following my dreams and I'm paying for it myself and I'm on a 75% scholarship. So I'm not going to have really loans that are that bad. At what age? Because I think I was like 34. I think I was, yeah, I was in my 30s because why go to two colleges when you can go to four for an undergraduate degree? you go to four colleges? Yeah, I left uh, I left DePaul uh, seven credits before I graduated because I was like, oh, graph, there aren't jobs in dramaturgy. This is stupid. Just like, and th there's more to that. Um, got a job actually at Playboy. And so dad, like, it really enjoyed being able to watch me throughout. And so like anytime I published something on a site, you know, he would send it out over on this like long chain email, mm -hmm. he, you know, and, and to see his success too, right? Like his book got translated into all these different languages and a second edition came out and the third edition came out and HVAC and refrigeration came out to see that was really cool to watch it kind of happen at the same time. And he was so stoked when I started at Penguin because I was moving back to New York. And I felt like moving to New York, like really, I understood him. He's like every blue collar guy on the train, like all the guys who are like, right in the way like New Yorkers have like a reputation for. Well, had you been to New York yet? Did you ever go with your dad? No, I had never gone with him. For my 16th birthday, my parents sent me with a school trip. My parents didn't really travel. We didn't have the money to travel. So when did you move to New York? In 2012. And that was for a job at Penguin. Yes. Six months later, I became Penguin Random House. So at what point did they visit you in New York? Or did you keep going there? My mom never did. I flew my mom to Chicago up for her birthday one year. And so that was super cool. And then my parents came 
three times to Chicago once. I think the first time they came, we always had this joke of like, what are you doing for dinner? And when I would tell whatever was on the menu and dad would be like, cool, I'll be there. And one time he called and he was like, what are you doing for dinner? And I was like, oh, I think we're going to get Luminati's, which is like the best Chicago style pizza. And he was like, oh, cool, make reservations for four. And I'm like, okay, hilarious. And he was like, no, really, uh, we're at the airport. There's a hurricane headed towards our house. We're going to be on the last flight out. Pick us up. And so that was like the first time they visited. And then it turns out that hurricane missed their house. They had to go home. But yeah, they thought they escaped the hurricane, but had to come back. So that was another time they visited me. I did the... I did a story series where called Mortified in which you... Oh, I know that show. Yeah. So I did that show, reading my middle and high school diaries oh. at the Green Mill in, in Chicago, this legendary club. And so my parents were front row center while oh. I shared how my embarrassing middle school adventures, which they really appreciated. They were like, oh, we thought this. <laughs> like, that's how much they supported. Like, they came out to see me read my middle school diaries. And then when my daughter was born... Became. Well, when was your daughter born? Tell me about that. She was born in 2009. She's 12. I don't remember learning how to read. Mm -hmm. I, I always just have read. And there's tape of me around two reading. My father recorded on cassette tape. But the book that he recorded was Go Dog Go. And so the night before my daughter was born, my parents curled up around my belly and read to her. Like... My father recorded my parents. They had never seen a birth. Yeah. And Matt's mom had never seen a birth either because in the 70s, I guess they knock you out. And Oh, yeah. Um, the twilight. The birth. twilight. Yeah. <laughs> and so I invited all three of them in. And my father filmed the event. And it's in my Gmail. I'm not sending that to you. Right. <laughs> I've never watched it. He filmed like from the neck up. I don't know how he filmed it. He was super proud because he said that the first person that my daughter looked at was him, like that they made Aww. eye contact. And so he was really like he always felt like they had this cool connection. And then he was the one who was there when my son was born. So sweet. So he was a really proud grandpa. At what point did your mom get sick? So my mom had always been unwell. She, in the 70s, had gotten hit by a Sears truck. And so one of her legs was longer than the other. A Sears truck? Yeah. They, I think they were getting tires or something. I don't know. My father had pulled up to the turnaround and the Sears truck just didn't sear and hit the car. And so it caused this accident. So one of her legs was longer than the other. So she had hip problems all her life. And she had a couple surgeries. The day of our wedding, actually, she had a heart attack. But we didn't know. And she just was like, I'm really nervous. I'm really excited. But she was like sweating. It was really intense. And we came home from our honeymoon and we were like, you don't look good. And he was like, yeah, I've had this weird flu right after you left. I'm going to the doctor. And we had flown into Miami. We hung out with them for an hour in between flights. Matt and I had flown back to Chicago. And it was like 7 a.m. and my dad called. And he was like, you need to be here right now because they thought my mom was going to die and they just didn't think that she would make it and he had waited from four o'clock in the morning because the rule in my family is that if something bad happens in the middle of the night wait until the sun rises because there's nothing anyone can do in the middle of the night anyway might as well get a full night's sleep yeah and so i flew down and hung out with my mom and my dad and then my father, this is always the thing about my parents. He joked that he was jealous of all the attention she got because two months later, he needed an angioplasty because he had similar problems. So they both were at, like going through these things together. It felt like she got older than she should have been. Mm -hmm. and, and so that was true for a long time. So we got married in 2004. 
and she died in 2015. And it was both like sudden and shocking and a complete surprise. And when I think about it, they were real casual about their health with me. My mom had been in the hospital for a week and they hadn't told me. So you got married in 2004. Yeah. She was having a heart attack and then she was very ill. Yeah. And then her health starts deteriorating. But also she's still the one like every family occasion is at our house. She's organizing everything. She's still like the glue that holds our entire extended family. Mom never made it to New York because at that point she wasn't really able to travel. But she didn't she wasn't able to say I'm not able to travel. She just said I don't want to go. Up until I took control of my dad's health, they weren't honest with me about how much health problems they have. They Got have. it. Very much like money wasn't my concern. They didn't want to worry me. And so my cousins and I have made a pact of, okay, when something happens, we're going to talk to each other because yeah. we know our parents aren't. And so everyone in the family knew that mom had been in the hospital except me. It was in New York. I guess this is 2015 for sure when I was like, I'm going to come home every month. It's just, I'm, that's where I'm going to spend money. Their favorite thing was to go to the mall on a Saturday. And they had a little dog, another poodle named Rudy at that point that they had gotten for my mom to keep her company and to help. I think my dad was worried about her being alone in the house all day. They lived in West Palm area and he was working in Florida and was driving back and forth. But I think he was worried about her. And so they got her this dog who, of course loved my father more and he was like my father's person and they would both get down on the floor together and would play tug out of each other's mouths yeah and so we're walking with the dog in a stroller out <laughs> of macy's yeah this says so much about my parents see the dog is wearing a rhinestone collar and it's this like bright yellow stroller and we're walking out and mind you like we're in places people would come up because they see a dog in a stroller <laughs> and right. my father would be like you know what don't touch the dog he doesn't like people and then would be like feeding him a mcdonald's hamburger oh my god <laughs> but yeah we're coming out of macy's one day and my mom's going yeah my doctor says i have copd it's no big deal and i'm like wait that is a big deal that's a yeah. really big deal oh yeah and we should go to the olive garden for dinner Nothing. right and my dad was the one who always would try to tell it to me straight and my mom wouldn't. And I was like, what is happening? And he's like, your mom doesn't like me to go into doctor's appointments with her. I sit in the car. I don't know. And she didn't want him. I think she was the woman who like would put her face on. She didn't yeah. want him to know. There's still some like shame with medical things. Definitely when she was sick, she did not want anyone around. And yeah. so I was there every month. And then I was there to celebrate their anniversary. She hadn't been feeling well. We had gone to the Olive Garden. I swear, like, every big event in my life has happened at the Olive Garden. We had gone to the Olive Garden the night before. She didn't eat much. We were supposed to go to her favorite place to get this French and June soup she liked. But it was down in Fort Lauderdale. She was like, oh, just go without me. Go see your grandmother. And then she called her cardiologist. It was a Sunday. Don't ever get sick on a Sunday, especially in Ugh, Florida. Terrible. And he was like, oh, yeah, you can make an appointment in the morning. And she didn't make it to the morning. Ugh. How did your dad react? It was bad. The biggest planning that they had ever done around death had been they had created a will when I was a little girl saying that I should go to my aunt and uncle, my dad's brother. Like, that's what her will said. Like, Brandy should go here. And my uncle died in 1993. And so it had been a while. That was the last time they'd revisited that document. Yeah, totally. And, and also her, like, contact information was not as up to date as she swore. <laughs> she swore that her address book was, like, 
picture perfect. It was not. But their biggest talk about death was like my father would joke, like stuff me and put me in the living room pointing at your mother. We were lost. It was brutal. And this is a man who had never lived alone before. I was like, do you know how to cook? <laughs> you know? Yeah. He did. Um, but, you know, I'm grateful for the dog who kept him company. When I think about that time period, I think about what the hospice rabbi wound up saying to me right before my dad died, which was that he needed to be with her more than he needed to be here. Yeah. So dad then started coming up a lot. To New York. To New York. I was pregnant with my son at this point, too. Yeah. I don't recommend that timing, but it gave us all something to look forward to. And in fact, my mom and I had this moment right before where she had felt the baby kick and she was the only one who could feel that. Like she knew about him. She was excited. And we had been arguing about a stroller. They Going back to I shouldn't ask for things, knowing what I shouldn't ask for. They were like, what's the like one thing that you want? And the one thing I wanted was the stroller that was super expensive, but it it transformed into like from a car seat and the wheels popped out. I really want the stroller, but maybe we should go half on it together. And my mom was like, no, we're getting you the stroller. I remember my dad and I are a day after... The Shiva, which my dad curtailed, like we did one day of it because he's like, I don't want people in my house. (laughs) And we're at the bank and he's putting me on the accounts because, you know, he's like an eye daughter and T-crosser in that sense. He just turns to me and like we're walking to the bank. He was like, we're buying the stroller. I'm like, yes, you are. Yes, you are. (laughs) (laughs) And I think he carried her with him. Mm -hmm. So he talked about her a lot and it was as if she was still very present. Yeah. And so he came to visit you in, was it a one bedroom? There were technically two bedrooms and my daughter's room was uh, very small. It fit a bed in like a dresser and it had a closet though. So it was technically a two bedroom. And yeah, he and his dog, because the dog went everywhere. That dog was on like 40 something plane rides, by the way. Amazing. A good traveler. We had bought a fancy couch when we moved to New York of like, we're Manhattan people now. And it transformed into a bed. And so, yeah, he slept in our living room for a few months. A week here, two weeks there, three weeks there. And then, like, before my son was born, who was, of course, two weeks late. My dad's oh, like, when is this baby coming? Oh, I'm sorry. He's taking his time. But he was there for you. He was there for you. He was there for me. Yeah, because I flew down. Until I wasn't allowed on an airplane anymore because you get so pregnant that they don't want you to come on an airplane. I actually had to have a doctor's note to fly home because they don't want women to like go into labor. As a woman who had the potential of going into labor on a plane, I did not want that either. No, you did not. I couldn't fly. Then he came to New York. And then the next time I came to Florida was after he was diagnosed and I moved in with him. What was he diagnosed with? Cancer. So my son was born in March. So dad's up January, February, March, some of April, 2017. 2017. So mom passed away in October of 2015. And then my son's born in March of 2016. And dad and I are back and forth from Florida to New York. And when he's in New York, he has some Chinese food. I live off of Grand, right by Chinatown. And dad had some Chinese food and he got stomach sick from it. And he never got better. And I'm extremely grateful for that food because he wound up going to his doctor. His job had ended. That's one of the reasons why he was like back and forth. He was teaching and then that school shut down. And so he was trying to figure out his next big thing. And we were like, oh, why don't we do something with the website? We can write another book. I was trying to convince him we would all move in together. I had it all mapped out to the point where I was like, 
having us look at real estate in the Hudson Valley, to which both my husband and my father were like, no, I'm not living with you. We are not living together. And this is a bad idea all around. I'm like, this is perfect. It's a sitcom. <laughs> like, it just seemed like the dream. I don't know why everyone said no. I was like, I just need to convince them. Yeah. If I work on them enough. The day after Mother's Day, I got a text from my dad that said, give me a call after the kids are asleep. And we did. And he was like, are you sitting down? Mm -mm. We had these bar stools. And I remember sitting on it and he said, I have cancer and it's in my heart and in my liver and in my hips and in my, I was like, who gets cancer in their heart? Yeah. And he was like, so here's what I want us to do. We're going to take family pictures. I'm going to die at home if it gets to that. And I need you to watch my dog. And I was like, absolutely. And Matt, not a dog person, was like, we'll talk about it. Years and years before the boundaries of our relationship involve like in for all of it, with the exception of adultery and bringing home a dog. And we hung up the phone and I went into the bathroom and I vomited and I couldn't stop throwing up. And the next morning I got on a plane with the baby and we went to Florida and I took over dad's care. And that's when I like learned everything I could about cancer. At that point, it wasn't. Yeah. It was like cancer of unknown primary origin because. Wow. That's what they call it. That's what they called it. And I was like, we are going to find the primary origin so that we can fix this. And I just had this belief that like, okay, I'm not going to cure cancer, but I am going to make this as manageable as your diabetes. If I just find the right study, the right drug, the right whatever, I'm, yeah. we can do this. And it was so humbling how generous people were with their time and their expertise. I was calling doctors all over the country. I bet. Because <laughs> you're like the queen researcher. You're not going to leave any stone unturned. Yes. And so we found out that there was this test that you could do that the company who runs the test, it was like really expensive and Florida bad insurance. He was always like, you can get lots of things on a bargain, but shoes, glasses and your health, you should never compromise on. And so he always had really good health care. But because his job had just ended, he was like on the marketplace insurance, which is like the worst thing you can do when you have cancer. And he didn't want to. He was happy going to his like regular oncologist who he liked, who was like not that much older than me or maybe a little younger than me. But you know what? She was totally open to like me being absolutely bonkers and going to be the one in charge of his care. Got it. Like it was a collaboration. Like she did not have to take advice from the four different doctors I had consulting on the case. I had the doctors yeah. from Sloan. I had the doctors from, from Houston, from the doctors in Seattle. Once we found out it was cholangiocarcinoma, there's like a whole network uh, of all these specialists all around the country. All of them talked to me. All of them were like, yeah, this is my dad. This is what I do. And dad was like, you're the one doing all the research. I'll follow your lead. Like so much pressure. But I was like, I am going to will your cancer away or at least make it manageable. And the first thing that he was on was really working. So it like fought back all the tumors. So like the heart tumor disappeared and the hip tumors disappeared and the liver tumor got slow enough. But the kidney tumor kind of had destroyed his kidneys. And so the drug was called Gemsar cisplatinum because of the cisplatinum part involved 
platinum, like what my wedding ring's made out of. And so that's bad for your body. Yeah. And so his kidneys stopped working. We got to do some bucket list stuff during that time. We took the family pictures. We did one cool vacation when I was a kid. We went to Tampa. I went and saw The Mermaids and Wikiwachi, which it was the same show from like 1991, which even with <laughs> the yellow ribbons and I'm proud to be an American, oh, the whole thing. Same routine. <laughs> same routine. <laughs> they had added some songs, but that like that stayed in there. So we saw The Mermaids and the Tampa Science Museum opened up and gave us backstage passes and had a photographer come to take pictures of us like on this like private tour that they gave yeah. us it was really kind yeah and the dog ate thanksgiving dinner on my lap in a restaurant eating turkey from my plate and my children got to know what it was like to travel and to see that through my eyes so yeah. that was very cool what did they call him they called him poppy my, my youngest didn't yeah. talk hey, right was, right and Your so daughter. my father called him the bear and my dad died a week before my son's first birthday and was hell-bent on us having the party. You're kidding. And so he planned, it's going to be a fireman party and you'll have little fire trucks and you are going to have this party, you promise me. And so we did. And actually it was really what we all needed. So you'd planned it with him, but mm -hmm. he wasn't able to attend. But you pulled it together and did it? A week yeah. after? The bear roared like a bear. There was a pinata. We laughed more than we cried. So despite growing up in Florida, we were indoor mall people. We had it outside at this nature park. So I made my family go outside. Yeah. Father dies. Daughter discovers outside world. Were you surprised after he died with all the planning that you'd helped to do by anything that was left behind? I was surprised he had saved all the cards that he had, like, they had written to each other. And they weren't writing, like, love letters. It was like, love Eric, love Eileen, right? right? But, like, the card was, like, everything was in rhyme and verse with glitter. He had yeah. this box where he's just saved all of them. And just, I think that really shocked me. And I was shocked by the Brandy book. I knew he had, was keeping a Brandy book, but I didn't know. Like, he put everything in there everything he kept one for himself which i really appreciated which had like his fireman honors it had people had written him letters about how his book mattered to them had you not known about that before no so that was really cool yeah so i appreciated those things That's so special also the man had 400 socks all white <laughs> like why do you have so many socks he got to see you become a parent Mama, did he ever give you any parenting advice? Did you ever ask any parenting advice? My father gave everybody advice for anything, uh -huh. always, whether or not you asked or whether or not he was qualified. And so I had tons and tons of advice. Our daughter, like, would not sleep, was sleeping in, like, 40-minute increments, and Oof. I could barely tell you my own name. Right. And he was like, bring her to us. You guys book yourselves some time in the Keys or at Disney World or I don't care where. And we got this. And I'm like, yes, here, please take my child. I would love to go anywhere. Sleep. Yes. So I remember calling him at 930 at night, you know, and he's like, wow, your daughter really doesn't sleep. Sleep ever. He was like <laughs> hanging out with her. My parents were very gendered. Everything I owned was pink. I 
didn't have Transformers. I didn't have Legos. I had all the Barbies. I had Cabbage Patch dolls. They did the same for my daughter. And I was like anti-pink. And so in her like princess room with the princess sheets and the princess canopy bed thing, he's sitting on the floor of her toddler bed, like trying to will her. I don't know what they did. But when we got back two days later, that child slept. And he would never tell me what he did. So yeah, I know he had some magic. That's pretty great. Now that your kids are older, they talk and They talk read. and stuff. Yeah. He took such delight in us. And I think the biggest thing that both of my parents believed was center your world around your kids. Yeah. And I didn't quite get it until after they were gone. And if I can be half the mom that they were to me, they're going to be all right. The bad thing about being an only child is that there's not anyone who you can reminisce with and tell the stories, right? Like yeah. they live and die in me. People come to me to tell me all the stories. After my uncle died, he had made the decision that my cousins wouldn't be without a father figure. And so he took them every weekend. I had a different cousin up through when my youngest cousin graduated. So for years and years. And he just showed up for things. Like he was definitely like both a maverick and someone who deeply cared and was mm -hmm. deeply moral in kind of an immoral way, if that makes sense. Didn't necessarily care about the rules and absolutely had rules that he lived by. But the love was the strongest piece of it. And I think he loved me the way he wanted to be loved and certainly the way he was loved by my mother. Like it was just we argued and thought about a lot of stuff and there was never a question about how loved I was. And that gave me this solid foundation and a confidence. Like he never treated me like a girl and was confused by why haven't you won the highest award in your field? Why haven't you? Like and then it was like, where's your Nobel Prize? Dude. Yeah. And I think this just expectation of excellence but which created pressure but also this belief that even like when it came to his own health and his own care you know what you're doing and like this trust he would both tell me how amazing I was and also tell me that there's always going to be someone smarter better prettier more creative more awesome have more money than you he would tell me both of those things but like it didn't matter that there was someone who was more it was I was enough and you marry that with the, it's always no if you don't try. And it like creates just enough confidence to walk through the world and be like, yeah, I'm going to be creative. <laughs> like I've always felt if it doesn't work out, I'll figure out something that will. And so have been very blessed. I've lived multiple careers that I've wanted. I've gotten to build the life I've wanted. Yeah. Not everybody has a foundation like that in love. And if I can give that to my kids, I will have done a good job. And if I can make the campfire for everyone better than I found it, then I'm doing all right. This podcast was created and produced by Erin Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook, and subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. Also, if you'd like to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts, we'd be super grateful. It seems like a small thing, but we'd love to know what you think, and every review helps us out. No pressure, though. Thanks for listening.